Here we are. This is so great. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we've been focusing on the resurrection. Brooke brought a wonderful message last week, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is the epicenter of the good news, the epicenter of the gospel. It is central to our faith. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're just talking in the wind. This doesn't make any sense, and our faith is futile. So it's core. It's foundational. And last week, Brooke talked about the resurrection of Jesus, but 1 Corinthians 15 continues on to talk about our resurrection in participation with Jesus following his resurrection. So there's a question that the Corinthians asked Paul. It's in verse 35, and it's our first point this morning. With what kind of body? I hope you'll have a copy of the scriptures out, because I don't want you just to hear my opinions, though I'm going to share a lot of my opinions, or at least my understanding. And you may disagree with that, but I really want us to wrestle with what the text actually Says So have a copy of it in front of you, verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? These were questions that the Corinthian Christians were asking to Paul, and he's going to answer the question. Have you ever thought about that? Where do you go when you die? What happens? Or to quote... A pink song, where does everybody go when they go? You ever thought about it? Paul's going to give us some insight this morning. I want you to remember that Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. He's talking to those that understand themselves as belonging to Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. This is a letter from the apostle to a local church. And so the language you use is assuming all along that you're part of the family. And I hope that you'll process and listen as we go and ask the question, do I belong? Am I part? Our series is called The Broken Kind of Beautiful. And I, I want to change it a little bit as we bring this series in for a landing. We're in chapter 15. James next week will close the series out. Uh, in chapter 16, and I, I, I want to congratulate us, Todd, that, that we actually, we're going to finish this thing, and it's been a long journey. You may not feel, really, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, us teachers, we know we've been here a long time, and we have loved it, but I want to change the series title to A Broken Kind of Beautiful Understanding, because our understanding is always broken. We're going to be talking about our resurrection body after we die, People, nobody really knows. We have no idea. I've never been there. We're all still alive. But what we do have is we have the text, this letter of Paul, who said that when Jesus rose, he appeared to the disciples and then to 500 people. And finally to Paul, the writer of this letter, had seen the resurrected Jesus. And then he wrote to us. And we have all of the scriptures. And we go to that. And that's our hint and so the title of the sermon this morning is Following Signposts in the Mist. And we have, to, we have to engage this with humility, my friends. Confidence in God, confidence in the scriptures, but with humility. And Paul answers the question, what kind of body, in verse 44. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, Paul is using the analogy of planting seeds in the ground. You can see that in verses 36 to 41. You plant a seed, the seed dies, and then something new and beautiful grows up out of that dead seed. That's the the metaphor, the picture that Paul is using. It's sown in the ground a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, we live in an era where there's been an unfortunate assumption about what Paul is talking about when he says a natural body and a spiritual body, and we immediately go to, oh, what he's talking about is he's talking about the physical body, and then in death we have this, this sort of spiritual kind of ethereal thing where we just, you know, float up to a place like that called heaven. And we have, a, we have vague notions, but it's a very profound sort of popular narrative it happens in funerals, it happens in sermons, it happens in just conversation and, and, and sort of Christian quips about what happens when we die. And, and I, I really, I want to push on that a bit. Some translations even will go so far as to translate this, there's a physical and then there's a, a spiritual Cicero was a first century B.C. Roman statesman and philosopher, and he gave two of the typical philosophical opinions. Either the body and the soul are annihilated at death. That's it. You bought the ticket. It's over. In the grave, you cease to exist. That's it. Or the soul at death separates from the body, and thus it lives on forever in some mystical place. And this might have been some of the confusing, uh, confusion for uh, the Corinthian church. And, the, and, and maybe in their mind they're thinking, well, Paul's talking about the resurrection of the body. He's talking about, you know, like half-decayed corpses coming to life and, you know, a walking dead first-century version of them coming and torturing and, 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 and coming after us. And we're greatly influenced by this Greek philosophical position. In fact, in the second and third century, one of the most dangerous heresies that attacked the church was this idea that the body is basically bad. The spirit is good. And so you got to get rid of the body and then the spirit will last forever. And Paul is going to say something quite different in the text. And that's the argument that I want to walk through that he's giving us. He's talking here in this natural body, spiritual body, about the animating power the fuel, the source of the energy with which we live. And he says there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. But they are still bodies. The natural body that Paul's talking about is everything that is motivating us. Our bodies, our blood, our nervous system, our brain. And also living in the world with brokenness that comes from our rebellion against God and the evil that enlivens it. When Paul talks about the natural body, he's talking about the system in which we live that has been infected by evil and we all participate in it. And in our most honest moments, we have to admit that we want good, we want to love, but there's, there's, a, there's an enlivening, animating source or force inside of us that oftentimes, many times, causes us to choose wrong. It's called sin. 
It's afflicted us. The spiritual body that Paul's talking about is the enlivening resurrection power of Jesus, fueled by the Spirit of God, to bring life to these mortal bodies. And when Paul's talking about this spiritual body, he's not just talking about, well, let's reserve our spot in heaven the way some of you got tickets to a Rolling Stones concert. That's not what Paul is talking about, but that's the sort of the popular understanding and conception. So when Paul refers to Adam, you notice it there in verse 45, he goes back to Adam. And earlier in verse 22, Paul is going to talk about Adam. What he's doing is he's taking us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to the beginning of this big story of the Bible, the big um, long arc narrative of the Holy Scriptures that we are now living in that shapes our story. And you really have to go back to Romans 5 to, to fully understand Paul's brief statements about Adam, but we won't do that this morning. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation story. And what did God say after he had created everything, finally with the humans, after the seventh day, after the sixth day, he said, as he looked around, it is very good. His creation, including us, was very good. The the great creation. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you have the great rebellion. And everything falls apart. The system is infected and we're all born into that. We are children of the first Adam. And the story of the scripture is the story of God reestablishing his kingdom because he is the king. He attempted through Israel. He sent Jesus as the, as the, the new Adam, the, the new Israel, the representative man for us. And Jesus launched, as he said, remember, the kingdom of God has come near in his body, in his personhood. What the Bible story is telling us is that God is always intent on a recreation of undoing what was done in Genesis 3, of getting back to Genesis 1 and 2, getting back to the garden. Because it was very good. And so that's been his determination the whole time. And Jesus, he taught us to pray, may your kingdom be here on earth the same way it is in heaven. That's our call. That's our calling And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is pointing us forward to what is to come. With what kind of bodies will we be raised? Now, this recreation of God, it broke into the world in Jesus. And yet, in a way that the disciples and Paul, all of Israel, they never anticipated. They had no idea Because Jesus came and he set his face to Jerusalem and he was crucified on a cross. And if you say crucified Messiah, you make no sense to the disciples and Paul. And yet in God's recreating story, he said, the natural, they can't do this. I'm going to do it for them. And then he rose from the dead As what? Verse 20, as the first fruits. 
I, I just want to like put an image in your mind. It's as if the garden needs to be tended once more. And the animals need to be renamed. Because God loves us. God loves you. God loves his creation. He loves this world. He loves everything about it except the natural impulse toward evil. And he loves our bodies. And I just I want to say that out loud. God loves your body. This dualism, it sometimes ends up being, well, my body's all I've got, so I'm just going to pour everything into my body. Or there's this subtle kind of hatred that oftentimes comes from the Christian message of your body's bad. Now, not everything our bodies do are good, but he does not hate our bodies. It says in verse 20 that when he rose from the dead, he was the first fruits. And then look at verse 23. But each in turn, notice the timing. Each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. That's an operative phrase, those who belong to him. So he's talking about a two-stage resurrection. The first stage was Jesus when he conquered death and rose from the dead and began this beautiful recreation process through his resurrection. And stage two, when he comes, he will raise us again. When we forget the reality of the resurrection, when we just marginalize it and think of it as a a good idea or something we celebrate on Easter, when we forget the resurrection, we lose who Jesus is. And we lose who we are and where we are in the story. It's a little bit like taking for granted the beauty of this world. And we were on the beach this morning. Friends, when I walk on the Esplanade and I I look at the Santa Monica Bay and I see the peninsula jutting out, and when I get on my bike and I ride around the peninsula past Terranea, and I see the beauty, I go, God, please don't let me forget how beautiful this is. And yet, you know how easy it is to do that? We just go, and you know, we're, we're at the beach. Oh, it's so crowded. There's no parking. They charge seven bucks for this parking. And, you know, it's a little, the, the water is kind of cold, and there's a little wind coming up. And, ah, you know, we, you know, we just, you know, I mean, there's people that live like a mile from the beach. When was the last time you were at the beach? Well, I don't really like the beach, you know. So, I don't know, like a year ago or something like that. I'm like, this is a playground. This is amazing. And we do that with Jesus' resurrection. Now, let me just drill down on that a bit. He says in verse 24, Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies. That's what he means by dominion, authority, and power. Those powers that are at enmity with God. Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's similar to what he says in Philippians 2. One day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Let me ask you a question. 
and I'm just going to tell you, this is, this is true of me more times than I want to admit. Is Jesus a good moral addition to my life, or is he the reigning, coming again, Lord of everything? He's a great teacher, but if we've boiled him down to a person that is a model and has good sayings and wonderful stories, and he, he just he loved the marginalized. If that's all it is, then we've forgotten that he right now is the king of the universe, the reigning Lord. And one day our knee will bow and our tongue will confess. Every power, every ruler, every commoner will bow and call Jesus Lord. So he says in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood, again, our current natural life with our flesh and blood, but again, also the animating force that is subject to decay. All of our broken parts. In ourselves, we cannot do this because we are in a, in a natural state, flesh and blood, with an impulse toward evil. No, Paul's not saying here, hear me, he's not saying that we will leave our flesh and blood and turn into a disembodied spirit. Now, he's not also saying that nothing will change. Hold on, here it comes. Back up in verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown like a seed is perishable right now. It is raised imperishable. This is the New International Version. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Note, it is still a body. But what kind of body? It's imp- Just let your imagination wander a bit. Think of the implications of this future body. Imperishable. Glorious. And full of power. If we have harps on cl- clouds, what do we need power for? It's like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. That, that's, that's this identity and this animating power that finds its source in God's world. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform Get that word? We'll transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What was Jesus' body like after the resurrection? The disciples saw him. They touched him. They talked with him. Sometimes they didn't recognize him and sometimes they did. They ate with him. And oftentimes it appeared that he passed through closed door. He had a transformed, resurrected body that was not merely flesh and blood. But it was that and more. Transformed and changed. 
So I'm done with most of the sermon. That was only the first point. But here's the second question. How will it happen? Verse 51. How will this happen? I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Those are the people that had already died before Jesus returned. What happens? But we will all be changed, get this, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, transformed, to have a body like the resurrected Jesus. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So the key words are changed. We're going to undergo a change. It's going to be transformation. And it's going to be like putting on a, a new set of clothes, this metaphor that Paul uses. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, this change is going to happen when Jesus returns. This is the picture I get in my mind. We, we, we don't know. It's a mystery. We, we have hints. We're following signposts in the mist. But th- this is the picture I have in my mind. That there is going to be a massive, relatively instantaneous recreation of all that which God said was very good. Will it be the same? No. It will be... St- unimaginably different a recreation with continuity with our world today that God loves our bodies today that God loves but transformed a transformed body and why not if God could in the far distant past speak this creation, this, the, these universes, the, 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 um, the people that have been, if he can speak that into existence with just the word of his mouth, cannot he recreate it all in an instant? Picture that. Imagine that. That could be terrifying if you were afraid of it. This, this massive speaking of God, Jesus returning on a white horse saying, enough is enough. Whoosh. And all the evil, all the decay, all the destruction, all the brokenness sucked out of the system. All made new. Amen? Wow. I mean, that just gets me going. And Paul finds this mystery. I better check the time. Okay, I'm all right. Paul finds this mystery connected to Israel's scriptures. I mean, he was steeped in in the, the sacred scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. It was the only testament he had. And he just lived in them. He breathed them. And he saw this picture coming out of Isaiah 25. Notice up in verse 54. Death, he says, has been swallowed up in victory. It's from Isaiah 25. I want to read it in context because this is just beautiful. Imagine this. We don't know, but this is, this is what Isaiah 
is, is, is getting hints at and giving us a colorful picture. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Vegans, don't worry, it'll be okay. On this mountain, he will destroy the, shr- get this, destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. The conflicts between nations, it will cease. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Where there are tears and where there is shame, it will be healed and redeemed and recreated for his glory. And then he also quotes from Hosea 13, verse 14, in verse 55. And in a sense, when Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's as if Paul is taunting death, laughing in the face of death. Now, I don't think he intends for us then to minimize death because death is a horrible enemy. And we're all headed there. And it is terrifying. And when someone we love dies, we are filled with sorrow and longing and we miss them deeply and we should never minimize that because Paul doesn't say that death is not an enemy it's the last enemy but it is our enemy and because of the sin in the system we are all headed there you know that Paul is telling us it's not the end of the story and so he in a sense can taunt death and say your victory is, is, has been lost. And, and if you were like a rattlesnake with venom, the fangs are gone. The venom's gone. If you're a bumblebee like Muhammad Ali, there's no, there's no sting there. So you're there. You're out there. But those who belong to Jesus, who will be recreated and transformed, do not have to fear in the final Analysis, death. And that's why some believers who have just loved and walked with Jesus, and I've been with some in their final moments, have a quiet peace. Dallas Willard one time said, You know, I think I might be dead for a couple hours before I realize I'm dead. Because his relationship with Jesus was so dear and so sweet that he could pass from this life knowing that he would be in the presence of Jesus. Imperishable, glory, power, no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The writer in Revelations, John, he says the same thing. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In Revelation 21, he even pictures the, 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 the new heavens and the new earth will come together into this transformed recreation. And it says in Revelation 21, now God will reside 
with his people. So finally, what now? Do we just like twiddle our thumbs and say, it's going to be so sweet in the by and by? Do we just like, you know, pray a prayer? Jesus, forgive me my sins so I can have my spot in heaven. And then this is what we tell young people today. Okay, you're a Christian. That's great. Now make sure all your friends are Christians and don't hang out with bad people. Don't do bad things. Don't swear. Don't smoke. Don't cheat. Don't have sex. Don't drink. That vaping thing, don't do that. <laughs> Believe, that is not a vision that will excite a 16-year-old to walk with Jesus. So what does Paul say? Verse 58. Therefore, whenever there's that therefore, right, Paul's bringing it to a conclusion. Here's the application. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Two weeks ago when James preached on 1 Corinthians 14, his sermon title was Go for Broke. That's what Paul's saying. If, if, if our future has that beauty to it, go for broke. Be all in. Live for Jesus. Give yourself fully to Jesus. Do not hold back. Don't turn him into a nice, like, like addition to your life. Don't send your kids to rush or to tide, somehow hoping that that will build their character. It's not enough. Be in. Cling to Jesus. Live for Jesus. Love Jesus. Get to know Jesus. The vision is so much grander. You and I are agents of the kingdom in the household of God. Right this very moment, we are agents of the kingdom. We have been given a calling, and our future is glorious, incorruptible, powerful. We will reign with Jesus forevermore, and we will be busy in that life. In this recreated universe with lots to do. And he says, start it now. Don't wait. Start it now. Get busy now in the work of the Lord. And if you're a student, right now, that's your work. It is forming your mind. It's giving yourself to that work. So you can let God create a mind that can live for him. If you're a teacher, your charge are those students. Give yourself to them. You're my heroes. You are my heroes. Teachers that love kids, that shape them and form them. Coaches, what an incredible influence to do it, working for the Lord. Those in medicine and art and design, those in justice, Tom Allen in Rwanda. Bringing the kingdom of God to bear now. Let's start it now. We're not waiting for heaven in the future. Eternity has started now. And what we do as a social worker, as a teacher, as an athlete, as a person who cares for the poor, goes to the Martin home or plant with purpose or wherever it might be, LA Mission, reignite hope. We are participating in kingdom eternal work now and your labor is never 
in vain. So get after it. Some of you are gifted as really smart people and you're involved in research that we don't understand, but you're solving the crises of this world. Cancer. Some of you care about clean water and an earth that is void of a a, a massive ocean of plastic in the Pacific. And you know that God loves this world and the work that you're doing to, 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 to bring this earth back to the status that can praise God in its purity and cleanliness. And Denise, when you preached on 1 Corinthians 13, the capstone of this letter, and Paul ended this chapter on love saying, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love ought to be our best friend. It ought to be our first step. It ought to be the language that we speak. Loving our neighbor, loving our children, loving our students, loving our enemies, loving ourselves. Let love just permeate our lives because of this vision of the future where love will last forever. These three remain, but the greatest of these is love. It will last forever. It will be the song of that forever world. And some of you are unsung heroes. You're behind the scenes. Nobody knows you, and you get discouraged. I want to tell you, as a pastor, we, we get discouraged. What are we doing? Does anybody really care? Are we making a difference? Where's this world going? Jesus is Lord, but where's the evidence? Nobody knows how hard you're working, but God does, and your labor is never in vain. And Paul ended another letter talking about the same thing, 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I want to encourage you with these words. You're an agent of the kingdom, and you have a job to do. We are no mere mortals sitting in this room. When I think of you as being imperishable and full of glory and immensely powerful who will never die and joy will fill your life and you will be full of love, we are not sitting among mere humans. If we could have a picture of what this means, then we can get after it and work. Some of that work is to come to the table. So come on up, band. We're going to move to the table. Because the resurrection is central, and the resurrection surprisingly followed this crucifixion, the church for centuries has always come back to the table, and they've taken the the bread, which represents the body, and they've broken that bread as Jesus' body was broken, and we dip it into the fruit of of the vine, representing Jesus' Bent, spilt blood for us. And we take it. We say, Jesus, I want you in me. I want you to live your life through me. So I'm going to participate. 
This represents our belonging. You can belong here. You can belong to Jesus. And when he comes again, and surely there's a day on the calendar that we don't know, he will split the sky and recreate the whole. So let's live for him. Amen? Amen. When you uh, are ready, please come.